please uh, welcome with me again, Reverend Michael Mather, and let me bio him before you clap. Some of you weren't here with us last night, so I want to tell you a little bit about who Reverend Mather is. He has been the pastor of Broadway United Methodist Church in Indianapolis, Indiana, since 2003. He is the author of Having Nothing, Possessing Everything, Finding Abundant Communities in Unexpected Places. He is also on the faculty of the Asset-Based Community Development Institute at DePaul University. Um, please welcome with me Reverend Michael Mather. Thanks again um, for the chance to be here with you all. I, um, because some of you were here last night, I'm going to do what I hope will be a two-minute foundational thing so I can build off of what I did yesterday a little bit. Um, so I hope that's all right. Um, I, uh, so yes, I've been at the church um, I am now since 2003, but it's my second time there. I was also there from 1986 through 1991. I came at that time to be the neighborhood pastor, the pastor in the streets, low-income, low-wealth community, and we ran programs. I ran the programs to help make things better. And um, um, I, I did that, and I did that really well, and patted myself on the back, broke my arm um, doing that. I just felt so good about it, but, um, but it really wasn't all that good. Um, and so I, um, I started to change my perception from um, scarcity to abundance. Instead of looking at people's needs, looking at people's gifts. And so there's a lot more to that story, and some of that will unfold in, in um, this time this morning. But I wanted to give you at least that foundation. But just also to say that that came um, at a lot of painful awareness for me. It was... Um, I, uh, I figured it out, um, but it was hard. So um, I called this talk today, What If the Mightiest Word is, is Love? That's from a poem by Elizabeth Alexander from Praise Song for the Day. It was a poem she wrote at the second inauguration of um, Barack Obama. So if the mightiest word is love, then we will structure our lives and our institutions and our practices accordingly is what... Um, I thought. And Elizabeth Alexander begins this poem by saying, each day we go about our business, walking past each other, catching each other's eyes or not, about to speak or speaking. All about us is noise, all about us is noise and bramble, thorn and din, each one of our ancestors on our tongue. Now, I um, in 2007, I went to South Africa, and a friend there told me a joke they had in South Africa in the 80s, and I thought, what was funny in South Africa in the 1980s? And he said, well, there's two possible solutions to our crisis here. One is miraculous, and the other is realistic. One solution is that God will send down angels and sort us all out. That's the realistic solution. <laughs> The miraculous one is that we will sit down and talk with our enemies. And when he said that, I, I thought, I don't try that nearly so often myself. I, I settle for the realistic solution. I, I was going about my business, everyday things happening, and I wasn't paying attention. 
you know that well-known story in Acts 3. Peter and John are going up the steps of the beautiful gate, and there's a guy who's carried to the beautiful gate every day to ask for money, and, and he asks Peter and John if they have money, and I imagine you know what they say, which is, silver or gold have we none, but we offer you all that we have in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. Now, for years at Broadway, I was the person that people would talk with when they needed financial assistance, rent, utility assistance, you name it, I was your guy. I realized that for years I had been realistic and not offering them miraculous and staying, instead of saying, silver or gold have I none, I offer you all that, we ha all that I have in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk, I would say, silver or gold have I some, here you go, see you later. I was not giving the mat miraculous a chance. I was not living as if the gospel is true. I was living as if what the world acted was true. And so I can be clear, it's not. Buried in the middle of that story in Acts 3, Peter and John, it says, looked at him intently and they said to him, look at us. The poet Mary Oliver, in her instructions on living, perhaps you know this poem, she says, pay attention, be astonished, and tell somebody. Pay attention, be astonished, and tell somebody. I was beginning to pay attention, but it was slow in coming. So I mentioned yesterday that in the midst of um, this traditional summer program we had done, which, where we offered classes in music, art, poetry, Bible study, and math, history, education for a healthy body, and recreation for the human spirit, built every week around spiritual principles. It was awesome. We stopped doing it because it wasn't doing any good. It wasn't doing bad. We were feeling really good about it, feeling really great, like we're doing this great thing, but it wasn't changing anything. And it, that was just really frustrating to me. So we, so uh, I mentioned yesterday that we started this thing where, uh, well, I heard once somebody talk about this discernment by nausea, when you know something needs to change, but it's not going to go well, you know? And, and we got people together in March of 2008 and said, we aren't going to do the summer program anymore. Why not? Well, because it doesn't do any good. It doesn't do bad, but it's not really doing anything. And it's not what we actually believe. We're offering classes to people because we think people are needy and don't know stuff, rather than actually believing that people have gifts in abundance. Now, I want to say that the hard thing about starting it was not about starting a new thing. The hard thing was about giving up the old thing. And this is true in churches, period, right? The hard thing is that you come back from a conference and you have all these great ideas you're going to do, right? Except <laughs> we don't have unlimited time. And where, what do you do when you've, you're already busy doing all the things that you keep busy doing? So... I had to think about this uh, a new way, and, and stopping doing the summer program was hard. So people would come to me, people in the church would complain to me. You shouldn't have stopped doing this. People in the neighborhood complained to me. How come we aren't having this program every, every day? 250 young people every day, nine to five. And I would say to people, well, if you wanna do the old thing, that's fine, do it. 
you can use space in this building. You can use any materials you want. You're in the church, you can do it. You're outside the church, you can do it. You know, do it. But no one wanted it enough to do it themselves. They wanted me to do it, right? That's how you tell whether the spirit is really moving. My friend Diamon Hargis, who we talked about yesterday, the roving listener, this, this um, laden person in our church who's amazing, and one of the things he always says is, Mike, you have an opinion about nearly everything. That's true, and I assume I'm not alone in this room about this. And he said, but you'd only do something about a few things because you're finite. You only have so much time. So he would ask me, what do you care enough about to actually get up off the couch and do? And all of a sudden, this was helpful because I would often do surveys in communities like, what do you think the church should be doing? I would do surveys in the congregation. What do you think the church should be doing? You know what? Now, I don't care. Really. I don't care about what people think the church should be doing. I care what people will actually get up off the couch and do, what people care about enough. So... Um, we hired, what we did was we hired young people who live in our neighborhood and we paid them to meet their neighbors. <laughs> and they did three things. They named the gifts, talents, dreams, and passions they saw in the lives of their neighbors. They laid hands on them and blessed them. And they connected them to other people who cared about the same thing. So we called it name, bless, and connect. As they met their neighbors, all of a sudden, we began to see things that were always there but had been invisible to us. We saw teachers and healers. We saw artists and gardeners. We saw writers and poets and dreamers and musicians. Now, when we did this, I told you we made this decision in March of 2008. The reason I tell you that is because in Indianapolis, when you write grants for funding for the cool stuff you're doing, you write it in December before the summer program starts, right? So we had written a grant in December saying, we're going to be doing the same old thing. Would you support it? And they had said yes, and now it's March, and we're not going to do it anymore. And we didn't tell them. I just, yeah. Actually, we didn't think about it. It wasn't that we, you know, it was, oh, we're, we're, this is what we're doing now. Instead of paying people from outside our community to come in and teach classes and do stuff, we we're going to pay young people, our neighbors, to go out and meet their neighbors. So we had hired Dwayne Carlisle as the pastor for children and youth and families at Broadway. He was a lay member in our church. We told him we'd hire him to do this if he would start going to seminary. I know that seems unnecessarily cruel, but, <laughs> but, but, but we did it anyway. But this is the thing, and this is why they asked me, I think, to come talk to you. Um, th th what, what we said to Dwayne about this was, if you start a youth group, you're fired. Now, I got to tell you that whenever Dwayne met with all the other youth ministers in town, which would meet once a month, they were all incredibly jealous. But it was a difficult th thing to get through to the imaginations of the personnel committee at the church, for example. We talked it through. The older folks in the on the committee had children who'd grown up in the youth group at the church, right? And most of them, though, most of those young people had not stayed in the church, either in our church or wherever they had landed. Younger people on the personnel committee didn't imagine that young people had a lot of time for youth group. 
So once they got past the idea of actually not doing one, when they thought about it on a practical level, they allowed that they would be okay with this. But it changed our life and practices of our church, and it changed the summer program. Young people, we thought, had something valuable to offer, and we were willing to pay for it. I remember somebody said to me, why are you paying for this? And, and one of the young people who was in the meeting looked at the person and said, well, you get paid for what you do, don't you? <laughs> I was like, well, yes, <laughs> well. So the summer started and we weren't thinking about much except starting to do things in this new way. So we hired the young people and sent them out to do this work. A week into the program, we got a call from the funder. We wanna come see what you're doing. Dwayne called me in a panic. We aren't doing what we said. <laughs> well, what do you wanna do? Do you wanna start it all, stop this and start the other? And we can't get it done in the time before they're coming. And you believe in what we're doing, don't you? Yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, we'll just have to do it. So the funder shows up and there's a group of young people to meet the funder and there's a couple of other people from the congregation and, and parish and community and the funder's like, Mr. Smith, his name's Mr. Smith. And Mr. Smith says, no, 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 I only want to meet with two of you. I want to meet with Dwayne and one other person. And they said, no, you need to meet with all of us because you need to hear this story. So they take him in the room we call the loaves and fishes room. And in that room, there is on the walls post-it notes, brightly colored post-it notes. And on each of the post-it notes, the young people have written the names of a person, a neighbor that they have visited, and the particular gifts of that person. So, but there's only one gift per post-it note. So if they met somebody and they found several connections and, and gifts, they multiplied that. So they had all these post-it notes up on the wall in this loaves and fishes room. And so they're sitting in there and they explain to Mr. Smith what's going on. And then the young people say, well, we've got to go because there are people expecting us to come by. And Mr. Smith said, well, I want to go with you. So he goes with them. And the first house they stop, they knock at the door, um, this older woman answers, and she looks at Mr. Smith and she says, Bill. And he says, yes. And she said, don't you remember you went to school with my son Aaron? You played on the basketball team together. He said, oh my God. <laughs> so they start visiting and, and, and they visit and have a good time together. And then they go on to the next house and the next house. And then they come back to the church and he sits down with the young people in the room and he talks with them about what they're doing and what they're learning. And then he asks to go talk with Dwayne. And Dwayne says, Mike, would you come sit in with us? Sure, sure, I'll do that. So I come in and sit there and 10 minutes in, Dwayne says, Mr. Smith, I know this is a little different than what we wrote in the application. <laughs> and Mr. Smith closes his book and looks up and says, Dwayne, this isn't a little different. <laughs> this is completely different than what you wrote. And he said, I got to tell you, I've been doing this work for 17 years for this foundation. And I've never seen anything quite like this. And I've worked in public education in this city for 30 years, and I've not seen anything like this. And I've, I see really excellent summer programs that work with 10% and 15% and 25% of the community. But what you all are saying is every single person is important. Wow, yes. Uh, okay, yes, yes, great. That, uh, yeah. 
So he said, you know, I'm going to go back and talk to the funder about this, but I think we should start using this as a way to think about what we're doing in our communities. And can we come visit you a little later this, um, this fall and, and take a look at it? Sure. So the funder calls, they set up a time, and uh, myself and a couple of the other young people take, um, take uh, the, the guy from the funder around the community. And, and we walk around and talk with him about what we're doing. And, and um, he says, you know, now we think we really like this, but we are a little confused about it. So could, could the three of you come back and talk with us about a week before we have the adjudication meeting in January so that we can help figure this, you know, just have it clear in our minds when we're meeting about this? Sure. So we come to the meeting in January, and we spend about an hour there, Jada and Jalen and me, and, and uh, we get up to leave after an hour, thank them for the meeting, and he said, well, I have one more question. We said, okay. He said, what if we gave you more money than what you asked for? And we said, well, that doesn't come up very often. <laughs> um, you know, and you're going to have to be more specific. And he said, well, what if we gave you 20000 more than what you asked for? And the young people said, well, we could probably do this and this and this and this. And he said, well, could you also do that? And they said, well, we could probably do that too. And he said, well, okay, we'll get back with you. So three months later, he sent a note to us saying that they were giving us 17000 more than what we had asked for. Again, not our common experience. And we didn't do this. We didn't do what we did in order to find more support or anything. We did it because we wanted to do something that we actually believed in, that was built on the gifts of people and the people around us, that the abundant life was around us and among and in that community richly, and we had to act like it. Man, those young people know how to build social capital. They talked about bringing together neighbors, old and young, with people outside the neighborhood who cared about the same thing, so they'd get cooks together. Now, we would have seminary students, by the way, who we'd say, hey, you know, go to these meals that they're getting together with all the cooks. And the seminary students, because they'd been trained well, you know, they would say, okay, what's the agenda? They'd say, no. They all love to cook. That's what they're going to be talking about. Listen to where the spirit's moving in that room. Listen to where the energy is. Who's making connections? And then let's talk about that. Gardeners got together and they bragged about who grew the biggest tomatoes and how. People who love computers got together and talked about, well, whatever it is that people who love computers <laughs> get together and talk about. And that is social capital across all sorts of lines. It's just, it is a gift that the church has, right? We have people who love and care about things. Communities have people who love and care about things. Why can't we talk together, not about the things that are wrong with us, but the things we love, the things we care about? So we talked about this some more, and, and those young people did it some more, but I want to talk to you about then what happened next summer as a result of their working this. So they did this again the next summer, the second summer, and we were making a lot of mistakes with this, right? But we didn't know what we were doing, and we're completely making this up as we go along. And, and so we, we do this a little bit into the summer, and it goes into the fall, and, and um, I get a call from the State Department of Health. Now, when you are the pastor of a church and you get a call from the State Department of Health, it is usually not a good thing. And they said 
uh, to me, we need to meet with you all this afternoon. Why, I said. Well, we'll tell you when we get there. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so they came at 1.30 in the afternoon. We sat down with them and they said, we've been investigating you all for the past four months. Okay. Again, not sounding so good. So what? And they said, our job as the Indiana State Department of Health is to make our communities more healthier and we haven't been doing a good job. But we've been investigating you all and what you all do actually makes communities healthier. And we just got $250,000 from the Rockefeller Foundation. We'd like to give it to the young people to build on their work. Now, you know, and we said, well, we can talk. You know, um, but one of the problems, there were, there were problems with this, I can tell you, because the way they talked was not the way we talked. And, and I remember, because we'd have to always schedule these things for after school hours, right? And we'd go, and they'd be talking about stuff, and it wasn't what we were talking about. So we invited a friend of ours, she was a young scholar who now teaches at Montclair State University here in New Jersey. Her name's Tamara Leach, and she's amazing. And she said, I'm a translational scholar. So we asked her to come translate for us. So she would meet, sit in the meeting and she would see when we were getting so frustrated we were gonna walk out and she'd walk up to the board and say, here's what you all are talking about to the State Department of Health and she would draw it on the board and use their language. Here's what these young people are talking about. You want to do what they're talking about and this is why. And we'd stay. So. Now we have a rule, and I talked about this yesterday in, in the, the lecture last night, is that in our place, one of the rules is that money always flows into the hands of our community. Because yesterday I talked about this thing, which we can't go into today, about the five rules to keep from being the agent of the devil in the middle of the church. But one of those rules is don't give poor people services, give poor people income, because poor means people don't have money. So we got this $250,000, we kept none of it. All of it went into the hands of these young people, and they decided what they was going to happen with it. So what they did was they hired more young people, more of their neighbors. They paid themselves a little more, legitimate, right? Their work had been recognized. And it, um, they, pay, they, they paid 60 of their neighbors to come together at the end of the summer to have a conversation together for two days. Some of them had to get off work and they thought it only fair that everybody should get paid for those two days of being together. They paid one of their neighbors $5,000 to be the keynote speaker. $5,000. <laughs> they paid. <laughs> Not that I'm feeling bad about this or anything. <laughs> they paid this neighbor. She was 92 years old. And I want to tell you what she said to begin the conversation. She got up and she said in front of this gathering, you know, I'm 92 years old. Most of you know me. I've lived in this neighborhood for the last 35 years. Both of my adult sons have died in the last 10 years, one of them from cancer. And I spent a lot of time with him the last six months of his life as he died from cancer. And I, and in the last six months, one of the things I learned is from the time he was nine years old to the time he was 12 years old, 
he was sexually abused by a female relative in my family. And I thought I was a mother who was on top of things. And I want to say to everybody in this room, pay attention to your children. That's how she started. Do you know how it then opened up the conversation between people? Then people talked about real things, about real life, opened up to each other, cared for each other. Well, they, we, they also took some of that money and they paid 20 of their neighbors so I told you about Tamara Leach. So Tamara Leach had got the Indiana University, Purdue University School of Public Health to um, oversee this, to, to give a report to this Indiana State Board of Health that we didn't know how to write because we're a church. <laughs> and, and so they hired 20 of their neighbors to work with the graduate students and professors at IUPUI in order to walk alongside them, learn what they were doing, and also help them in what they were doing. Out of that, several of the people that worked with those graduate students and professors got hired by the university. Those young people understand social capital. This is what brings change. This is how things happen. So, um, they did that, they, they, these young people did that. And, and I wanna pause here for a moment and say that one of the things that had been clear to us and why we said to Duane, if you start a youth group or you're fired is because, so do you, any of you know how Methodist Hospital in Indianapolis started? Probably not, right? So over a hundred years ago, a group of young people 18 to 25 years old, went to the Methodist conference and said, there is not a hospital that will take people who don't have money in this city. We want to start a hospital. Again, this is over 100 years ago. Give us a million dollars and we will start a hospital. That's how Methodist Hospital of Indiana started. Today, at annual conference of the United Methodist Church in Indiana, we ask young people to come on stage and clap and jump up and down and show energy. Young people have incredible gifts to give in this world, and it is a sin to waste it. They have power, imagination, they don't know what can't be done. They have eyes of abundance, not eyes of scarcity that we get schooled in. And so that's why. So, so, and these things were kind of going on at the same time, this hiring young people from our neighborhood to meet their neighbors and not doing youth programs. So what do we do instead of doing, you know, youth groups? So what we did was we sell, gathered meals around young people, individual young people in the life of the congregation. So. What that meal looked like was a young person would have a meal and if that young person had a home, which not all the young people did, it would be in their home. If they didn't have a home, it would either be in somebody else's home or in a restaurant, but it was never in the church because if it was in the church, it changed the conversation. So we held it mostly in people's homes. The family of the young person had to come. The young person could invite whoever they wanted, young or old, it didn't matter. 
we still do this, so young people, so other people would come to the meal. Then we would usually think about who are two or three or other people who would come to this. And then what happens is after we eat the meal, we ask the, everybody in the room to go around the room and tell that young person what gifts they see in that young person's life. And then after we do that, we ask the young person to share what their gift, what their sense of calling is in the world, what they think they're going to do with their one wild and precious life, right? And then Dwayne turns around and asks the other people in the room, does anybody here have anything they want to offer to the gifts of this young person? And then after those are named, the young person comes to the middle of the room and we lay hands on him or her and we bless them. And that's what we do instead of youth group. And that's what the young people do at the beginning of every summer with each other. They hold individual meals before the first week is out. There are like 25 meals in homes in the community, lunches and dinners, where we gather and celebrate the, the young people who are working in the summer program. And we do the meals the, same, the exact same way and we celebrate that because that's what they do. I told you about name, bless, and connect. That's what they do. That's how they name, bless, and connect, <laughs> right? Is they do that by celebrating these gifts when people come together. By the way, at the governing council meeting of, of Broadway, we asked like two of the young people to come, uh, Montel and Grace, who were two of the people who had the first meals at their place, and they came and talked with the governing council about it. And after they were done, people turned and were like, why are we just doing this for young people? And it took years, but two years ago, we started doing it also for shut-ins. And also, so now other people are saying they want it done for them, and well, you know, they need to figure that out. So, but yes, it, it, trying to create this culture of how do we recognize the abundance? Again, I'm not talking about wearing rose-colored glasses. I'm talking about paying attention to where the gifts in the room actually are, where things, where, where people are gifted and where they have something to offer. And then we work our way past the roadblocks to that by building on those gifts that are around us. In Luke 6:38, Jesus says, give and it will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So I'm going to give you two examples of these meals. So I told you about Montel. So Montel had been, um, his grandmother had got a letter the second semester of his freshman year in high school saying, consider this a certificate of completion. We don't want him back at school. This was a letter from a public school saying he's never going to be able to drive a car, he's never going to be able to figure out this, that, or the other. I mean, they just had this listing of all the things he couldn't do. So around this time, they, there was a meal held for Montel. And Montel talked um, with the people who went around the room. So his grandmother was there, his grandmother who he lives with. So his grandmother talked about how every morning Montel gets her up, gets her clothed, washes her, gets her in her wheelchair, and gets her out and going into the day. This is a person the school says can't learn anything. It's crazy. 
So the people around the room, they talk, then Montel talks about what he wants to do. And he, Montel says, I love old people. And I want to spend my life making sure that old people have meaningful lives in whatever way I can do that. And people around the room said, four people said, Montel, we will meet with you regularly. Two of them lived within a block of Montel and two of them lived in other parts of the city. We will meet with you every month, pray with you, bring our connections and help connect you with people we know who care about and love old people as well and we'll see what can happen. By the way, that was over 10 years ago. Montel is a CNA now and he does a lot of really good work and he still lives about a half a block from the church. The other person I want to tell you about is Jasmine. And Jasmine, she was in middle school when we did this with her, and Jasmine talked about how she loved to sing, which her mother knew because they would ride together in the car and they would sing together along with the things. And, and her mom said, um, so her mom said, oh, she's a really good singer. And other people affirmed that. Somebody said, yeah, she had this little part in this school um, musical and and she really stole the show and she did great and so oh that was nice what did what did Jasmine want to do with her life she says well you know I really love opera and everybody was like what <laughs> her mom was like you love opera her mom's like I love earth wind and fire <laughs> you know you love opera where do you even listen to opera she says well I get it on the internet and I listen to it in my room and and I really think it's cool. Well, one of the people Dwayne had invited to the meeting was a Presbyterian um, minister who, who goes to our church named Felipe Martinez. And Felipe sings in the Indianapolis Opera. But we didn't know she was going to say this. And Felipe says, can I give you a tour of the opera? And you know what? I think there's this duet that's just for voices like ours. And why don't we sing this in church in three weeks? You and I sing this duet. And then she came to the middle of the room and we laid hands on her and blessed her. I mean, we build the, the, everything we do around the idea that if the mightiest word is love, then that's what we should pay attention to. Always, always, always. So I wanted to read to you another line of um, this poem she has, Elizabeth has. Some live by love thy neighbor as thyself, others by first do no harm or take no more than you need. What if the mightiest word is love? Love beyond marital, filial, national, love that casts pool of light, love with no need to preempt grievance. In today's sharp sparkle, this winter air, anything can be made, any sentence begun, on the brink, on the brim, on the cusp, praise song for walking forward in that light. So I want to close with one final story, and then we'll have a couple minutes for conversation, I think if that's okay. So we had a visit from a church in Columbus, Ohio. It was an Episcopal church, and they came and visited us, and um, it, we, it didn't start well in particular. They're meeting with us, and, uh, and with us, I mean um, the pastor, the lay leaders, a few young people who do the roving work in the summer, and they said, uh, you know, we have a problem at our church, and we said, what's the problem? Well, we do a lot of giveaways, and we said, okay, People take too much. You do giveaways. 
Yes. And people take too much. Yes. Do people take more than you give? No. Well, what do you mean people take too much? I mean, so it wasn't starting off well with us. And then they said, yeah, 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 everybody has a gift. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, we believe that. But, but what about people who are mentally ill or people who are addicted? And we said, well, we make them the chairs of our committees. <laughs> and you laugh, but it's true. The chair of our finance committee at the time was Todd. Todd struggled with meth addiction. There is nobody we have ever had who is better at explaining the complex finances at our place than Todd. There's nobody who's had more patience to sit with people and listen to people and answer their questions patiently than Todd. If we said to Todd, you've got to be completely in recovery for a year or two years or something before you can do this, we would lose. Francis is the chair of our governing, was the chair of our governing council at the time. Frances has had decent jobs in her life, good jobs, and she did at the time. Um, she struggles with bipolar disorder, but she is a really great chair of our governing council. And if we said to her, just because you struggle with mental illness, you can't do this. I mean, like, how many of us don't struggle with mental illness? I mean, I, we all do, I think. Maybe I'm alone in this <laughs> myself, but I mean, so why is it that we look at some people and say, this disqualifies you while this doesn't? I mean, Orthodox Christian theology doesn't make distinctions like that. We're all in the same sinking boat, saved by the same wonderful God. Does that mean we're perfect? No, right? So we continue to try to find ways to live as if the gospel is true and to live as if the mightiest word is love.